hey, man, I like this weather. I just wish it would snow. Then everything would be complete, and I'd be fine, and I'd be happy. But it's hot in here right now. I can feel that heat come back here. So pardon me if I took my coat off, and uh, I'm going to preach without it, and I feel so much better. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would now, and open them to Ephesians chapter 1. We continue our study of the book of Ephesians tonight, and I don't know how this has been for you, but I have really enjoyed the opportunity to get into these truths of this book, and especially the truths of this first chapter, uh, where Paul speaks so clearly about the, about the uh, uh, things of God and the deep doctrines of God's Word, and Paul just sort of plunges us into some very profound doctrinal truths of the Bible as we read them here. Now, it's amazing as we read this that there's really no setup to this. I mean, Paul barely, if at all, prepares the reader for what he's about to say, and Paul just sort of makes these statements matter-of-factly, and he expects us that we would take these things without argument, and he expects us to believe this at face value and to an accept it. And uh, the problem comes and the arguments come when people discover that they really don't like Paul's doctrine. And so they will begin to uh, try and disprove it. They will try to destroy it by dancing around all the issues. But Paul makes it very clear what he's stating in in this passage, and he expects us to believe it. Now, what Paul... Uh, is telling us about here is he's tying all of the blessings together uh, throughout this first chapter. The blessings of God, he places these all under one big umbrella and he states that God began it all when he chose a particular people to be his before the foundation of the world. And on those chosen ones, God has bestowed all spiritual blessings. Uh, The Bible tells us they are elected, they are sanctified, they are adopted, they are accepted, and they are redeemed. Now, last week I had the opportunity to delve some into the issue of redemption, and I just was able to talk about it very briefly as we spoke about the one who redeems, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the people who are redeemed, and these are the saints of God, and we spoke about the price of redemption, and that, of course, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so all of those who are elected of God are the ones for whom the Redeemer gave his life and his blood to redeem. Now, tonight I'd like to speak to you on redemption again, and I want to speak about the blessings of redemption. So if you'd please stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 7. Now, you need to remember that we're breaking into a thought here. There's one continuous sentence that begins with verse number 3 and goes all the way down to verse number 14. So we're breaking into the middle of the thought in verse number 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. We just praise your name, Lord, for the great truths that we're able to talk about here from the book of Ephesians. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight. Give us something from your word. Help us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
There are three major thoughts that I'd like to speak to you about on the subject of redemption this evening. And these thoughts uh, are about the results of redemption. Last week I spoke about the legalities of salvation. And mostly there I was sort of talking about the mechanics of redemption or how redemption is secured for us. But tonight I want to discuss the results of redemption. What does redemption do for us? Well, let's look at verse number 7 again. Uh, Paul writes, "...in whom we have redemption..." Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so we see in that verse the first result of redemption. And the first result is that redemption results in forgiveness. Now, in the uh, previous lessons in our study, we've concentrated mostly on God's side of this. We've been speaking about God's sovereignty and grace and what God has done. And Paul begins this section in verse number 3, speaking about the blessings of the Father. And he's shown us that all aspects of salvation begin and end in God. And then in verse number 6, he points us to what this redemption is all about and where the focus of redemption should be. And he tells us there that it's for the glory of God's grace. And, of course, that teaches us this is all God's side. Everything is done to promote the glory of God. And that's why God has chosen and why God has redeemed. Now, men will take the focus of these verses and they'll try to turn it around and they'll put the emphasis on man and they will begin to deny God's choices. And in the process of doing that, they bring glory to man rather than to bring glory to God. And there's a reason why people do not believe in the doctrine of election. They don't believe that God actually chose anyone before the foundation of the world because they really don't want God to have all of the glory. What men want to do is to inject themselves into this. They want to be able to talk about the big I and the decisions that they have made and the choices they have made rather than speaking about what God himself has done. But that's not what Paul does here. He talks about God's decisions and Paul's focus is not on man, it's on the glory of God and on the glory of God's grace. But tonight we take a, a little different look at it. We, got, we get to look at, uh, at man's side of this. Now, God still is getting all the glory, and we do want to understand that. But now uh, Paul uh, shifts the focus to how, what God has accomplished for us, what, what he has done for us in redemption. And so now we begin to talk about what man receives and how man actually benefits from this wise plan that was formulated by, by God in eternity past. And let me say to every one of us here tonight that we need to thank God that it's his plan and not our plan because our plans won't work. God has a perfect plan and the plan that he devised is the best plan. And if it hadn't been for God's plan, none of us would ever have anything to look forward to but a future in the fires of hell. And so Paul lets us look at the results of redemption. And the first result of redemption is the forgiveness of our sins. And forgiveness, of course, is a very necessary part of salvation because without it, we could never be reconciled to God. Now, forgiveness is not the only result. It's one of the results that we have of redemption, and we certainly can't wrap up redemption all in this one thing as we talk about forgiveness. Ultimately, redemption also results in the glorification of the person, but it has to start here in the forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness is an essential preliminary to our sanctification and our glorification, and we can't realize all of the benefits of redemption until we have been forgiven of our sins. So how is it essential to salvation? Well, first of all, we can say that uh, forgiveness is essential to escape guilt. 
And this is something all of us must do. We must realize the guilt of our sins. And this is probably the most disliked notion of the human mind. Men do not like to consider this idea that along with sin also comes their guilt. And perhaps we're content to deal with the problem of sin, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but we really don't like to talk about the guilt of sin. You see, there's not a person who likes to think that his mind is so depraved and that he has so seriously violated God's law that the end result of that would be eternal punishment. People really don't want to accept that. And so most preaching today will speak about power of deliverance from sin. We want to be delivered from the power of sin. And we realize, of course, as Christians, that sin is the thing that makes us unhappy. Sin makes us miserable. And I don't think there's any of us who wants to be miserable. And so we're concerned about happiness. We're always concerned with the pursuit of happiness. But we notice here that the Bible does not start out with our happiness. It starts out with our guilt. It establishes our guilt first. I mean, you think about this for just a moment. When did you ever read in the Scriptures where Paul or Jesus or any of the New Testament writers began a gospel presentation with, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants you to be happy. God loves you so much that he's saddened by your unhappiness, and he wants you to live a long, happy, fulfilled life. Have you ever read that that in the Scriptures? Did you ever read any of the gospel presentations in the Scripture and come to that conclusion? No, you haven't, because the Bible always starts out with man's guilt first, not his happiness. Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, you read Romans chapter 3, and you see how far you have to read before you come to the part where man can be happy. Would you like me to tell you how far you have to read? You have to read all of chapter 3. You have to read all of chapter 4. And then when you get to chapter 5, verse number 1, it says, Therefore we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. And so the first thing that you have to do is go through all the preliminaries. You have to go through all of these things that point to man's sinful condition and the need of our justification. So the Bible does not start out with man's happiness. It starts out with man's guilt. When Jesus was speaking with the woman at the well, she asked him first to give her living water. Do you remember this? And do you know how Jesus replied? His immediate answer was, Go call thy husband and come hither. And you know the story, don't you? She was trapped when Jesus said that. She said, I have no husband. But of course she did. Matter of fact, Jesus said, No, you've had five husbands, and the person you're living with right now is not your husband. And so she asked for living water first, but Jesus hit her right square on top of the head with the guilt of her sin. Now, people don't want to be told that they're sinners. I mean, they're, they're not interested in righteousness. They're interested in happiness. But friend, there's, there's no deliverance from the power of sin until there is deliverance from the guilt of sin. I might be going a little bit off point now, but I want to throw this in. I think it's interesting that people who believe in a universal or a general atonement very seriously miss this point. I mean, they believe that Christ died for no one in particular, and all that Christ did was provide a blanket forgiveness of sins for everybody. His death on the cross reconciled all men to God, and so redemption has been secured for all men. But what do we learn here? I mean, what are the results of redemption? Well, according to Paul, a result of redemption is the forgiveness of sins, 
And so these people say, well, then everybody has their sins forgiven. Christ died simply to give you forgiveness of sins. But let me ask you something. If every person already has forgiveness of sins, then no one is guilty, are they? If you've been forgiven, you can't be guilty. You can't be guilty and forgiven at the same time. And if you're forgiven and you're not guilty, then who could possibly die and go to hell? That couldn't happen. I mean, no one would go to hell. And so we come back to the idea that many people have of universalism. And that means that all people are going to heaven regardless. You see, you can't preach universal atonement without preaching universal salvation. That You have to be consistent in this thing. But the conclusion to this is that it can't be a general redemption. It must be a particular redemption that Christ died particularly for his people and those chosen ones of Christ are the ones who are infallibly redeemed. And that's the true biblical position. That's the true Baptist position. It's always been that way from the centuries past. And there are lots of scriptures that prove this. I mean, uh, we have many scriptures, but we only actually need one And we can listen to what Jesus said in John 17, verse 2. And here we come back to this old familiar scripture. I speak about it over and over and over again. Because until somebody can say this scripture is not true, then we have to believe it. Until they can prove it otherwise. And what did Jesus say? As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Well, who are those? These are the elect of God from the foundation of the world. These are the ones that are given to Christ, and God has given eternal life to these. And so Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And you'll notice that Jesus did not say, I lay down my life for the goats. He laid down his life for the sheep. Now, according to Matthew 25, 31 through 34, Jesus very clearly tells us the separation between the sheep and the goats. And he gave his life for the sheep. So redemption has to be particular and not general. Men are released from their guilt and they're forgiven of their sins. And that's a result of redemption. Now, the next thing we see is that forgiveness is essential to escape wrath. Now, before we're redeemed and forgiven, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God abides on us. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come into the world to establish our guilt and to make some kind of proclamation about condemnation. He didn't have to. And that's because when Adam sinned, all of his posterity became condemned. So Jesus didn't have to come into the world to condemn the world. It's already condemned. Now that's why we don't believe in predestination to hell. Now, sometimes we're accused of believing that, but that's a false charge. And it's not even a necessary inference from the election of some to salvation. Because all are justly condemned in Adam. All of us are the children of wrath. And that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. God didn't predestine anyone to hell. They're on their way to hell because of their own sinful choices. And this is clear because there's never been even one single person that was born into this world who did not sin. Without exception, every person sins. They're born with a sin nature, and they will sin. Well, doesn't the Bible tell us that Christ came to save people out of their sins? But all people aren't saved. And why is that? Well, the conclusion must be that Christ intended to save some. Because if it were God's intention to save all, all would be saved. Because God has the power to save all. And so it it doesn't matter what side of the question you come down on. You always have to confront the problem that God could have saved all if he had wanted to. 
Nobody's more powerful than God. And he certainly, if he had wanted to, could have saved every single person in the world. Well, the immediate objection that some have is now that means that God must have created some people just for the purpose of destroying them. Well, I don't believe that. I mean, you don't solve any problems by saying that God created people to life and then he left man simply to make his own choices, to make his own decisions. I mean, what would that solve? Some still go to hell, don't they? And God in his perfect foreknowledge would know that they were going to hell, wouldn't he? And so God allowed them to be born with the full knowledge that they would all go to hell. So, so why doesn't God prevent their birth? Why doesn't he stop that? So you see the problems that you encounter with this? You don't solve anything at all by saying that there's no election and saying there's no particular redemption. Instead, without election and without particular redemption, you leave all men unsalvable. And why is that? Because it's God who has to work first in a person's heart. I mean, God is the one who works first, and he must change our sinful nature and our sinful will into the place that we have a willingness to be saved. And if God didn't do that first, then all men, without exception, would fail to choose Christ. We can't choose Christ without the power of God first. And that's the plain teaching of Scripture. Now, here's something I can't do. I cannot solve for you the problem of why God allows people to be born when he knows that some people will go to hell. I don't know the answer to that. Only God knows the answer. And what he does and what he doesn't reveal, I don't have any right to question. I don't have any right to speculate on this because God has the right to do with his creation what he wants. So forgiveness of sins, this is essential to escape wrath. And again, if Christ had forgiven all men without exception, then all men without exception would not suffer God's wrath. Now, thirdly then, forgiveness is essential to promote fellowship. What is it that separates us from God? Well, the Bible says that we're God's enemies. It says that our sins have made us the enemies of God. But most people believe that they're pretty good people, don't they? Most people think, I don't really need forgiveness. And they think that when they come down to the end of their lives that God's going to open up his arms and welcome everybody in and fellowship with God is instantly procured for everyone. Nobody thinks they're too bad that they should have to go to hell. Well, you know how to debunk this myth with a lost person? How do you talk to a lost person who says, well, I'm not so bad after all and I should be able to go into heaven? How do you deal with a person like that? Well, the first thing that you do is you ask them, why? should they be allowed to go into heaven? And immediately a person will start listing all of his good qualities. And so you'll ask them, well, have you ever told a lie? And they'll say, yes. And if they say no, they're a liar. And so you say, if you've told a lie, then what what does that make you? Makes you a liar, doesn't it? Have you ever stole anything? Have you ever cheated on anything? And most will say yes, but if they say no, then you say, well, I don't believe you because you already told me that you were a liar. And you say, have you ever lusted in your heart? And everybody will say, yes. Well, did you know that Jesus said if a person lusts in his heart that he's already committed adultery? What does that make you? An adulterer. Have you ever slandered God's name? you ever used God's name in vain? Well, yeah, I've done that too. Then you're a blasphemer, aren't you? Then you say to him, what, what are you going to say to God when you stand in front of him in the judgment? What are you going to tell him? You'll have to tell him, first of all, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer, and I'm a blasphemer. Please let me in. Point me to my message, or to my mansion, rather. Now, you see, 
you have to have forgiveness. If you don't have forgiveness of your sins, there's no fellowship with God. Now, John said, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then he said in the third verse of that same chapter, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And so, until you have forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, you can't have fellowship with God. And that's why Jesus is so important to us, because without him, you'll never see God. So the first result of redemption is forgiveness. Now, secondly, redemption results in wisdom and prudence. Verses 8 and 9, "...wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence," having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he had purposed in himself. Well, what does Paul mean here by wisdom and prudence? Well, I would say first that there is a great deal in the plan and purpose of God that we don't understand, and possibly we never will understand. But there are certain things that God has revealed to us, and God has given us wisdom So we can understand those particular things. Now, first of all, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is correctly applied knowledge. And there are lots of people who have lots of knowledge. When I was younger, uh, my father-in-law used to say to me, Well, you're really book smart, but you don't have much common sense. I hope I've improved somewhat in that area. But that's what he used to say. Well, what, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is how to correctly apply the knowledge that you have. And so there are lots of people who know facts and figures. They know all those things. But they don't know how the facts and figures fit into the overall scheme of things. And the same thing is true of religion. You see, you can learn the Bible from cover to cover. You can know every story in the Bible and you can tell it in detail. But if you don't have the wisdom to apply it, it'll never do you any good. It won't mean a thing. And this is the problem with every person that's born into the world. Every person born into the world without Christ does not have the wisdom to apply the knowledge of God. Sin has debilitated our wisdom concerning the things of God. Now, that's what was wrong with Nicodemus. Remember the story. He's a ruler of the Jews. He knew God's law. He knew even enough to call Jesus rabbi or to call him teacher or, or one who has great knowledge. He knew a lot of things. But when Jesus said, you need to be born again, he didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. Why was it? He didn't have the wisdom to apply the facts that he had. He didn't know that yet. And every person without Christ is exactly like that. The other day I was watching a television program and there was a courtroom scene where there was a lawyer and uh, she was using some words from the Bible. She quoted from the Bible. But as she did, she completely misused the Scriptures. And it didn't apply at all to what she was saying. Well, she was well-educated, no question about that. But she didn't know how to apply the knowledge and wisdom. And so, you see, sin has destroyed this ability to recognize and correctly apply God's Word. But in redemption, God gives us that ability. He gives us the capacity to understand His words. Now, if any person comes to you and they tell you that they believe the message of Christ because it was their choice and they understood it, you tell them they don't know what they're talking about. 
There's no one who can understand the things of God without the Holy Spirit of God. Not a single person. Let me read to you an old familiar scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And then to that we can add 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For after that, in the wisdom of the world... Wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And then we can further add 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So if there's any preacher or any person who tells you that they understood these things and they made their choice without God first opening their blinded eyes, then you tell them they don't know what they're talking about. Now, I might add one more thing because I think it's appropriate here. It is evident that God has not opened all eyes because if God had opened all eyes, then all people would believe. And so what we have here is a choice that God makes according to his sovereignty. God is the one who makes the choices. So God gives us wisdom in redemption, but he gives us something else. He also gives us prudence. What does prudence mean? Well, prudence means insight. And this is the practical side of wisdom. Prudence is insight. It's spiritual discernment. Now, this is the thing that tells you how you can handle your everyday normal experiences. Do you know that Christians react differently to things than people of the world do? At least they should anyway. They react differently. God gives us, God gives Christians insight on how to deal with common problems that come into our lives. Now, you think about this. How how many lost people react to a marriage problem by just chucking the whole thing? About two-thirds of all people who get married do that very thing. They get divorced. What about Christians? Well, sadly enough, Christians actually fall into the same statistic. But they don't have to. And they don't have to because God has given us prudence. He's given us insight into how to deal with these things. Now, when Jesus said this, he said, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Do you think that Jesus didn't know that there was such a thing as divorce when he said that? Of course he knew that. And so there must be a divine solution to it. There must be a divine way to get out of this problem that we have in our marriages. And this is what God allows us to do. God gives us wisdom and prudence. He gives us spiritual discernment to know how to understand the solution to this. So this is a benefit. It's a result of redemption, and that is true in all areas of our life. If we simply rely upon the wisdom and the prudence and the understanding that God gives us, we have the answer to our problems. You don't need psychiatrists. You don't need psychologists. You don't need any of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying they don't have their place because certainly they do for certain illnesses. But a Christian should not have to rely on those kinds of things because he has the power of God within him. He can look to God for the answers to these questions and it's all about how closely do we live to the Lord? How much do we lend to him? How much do we live after the Spirit? And that solves a whole lot of our problems. Now, I want you to notice what God has revealed to us in wisdom and prudence. What does he give us wisdom and prudence to deal with? Well, it's God's mysteries. Look at verse number 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. What, What is a mystery? 
Well, what is this particular mystery? Well, it's the mystery of the plan and the purpose of God. What kinds of things has God given us enough wisdom to understand? Well, all the things that I've been talking about for the past few weeks, election, sanctification, adoption, redemption, all of these other doctrines of the faith. Now, remember when we started this out, I told you, Paul is not talking to seminary students. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, he wasn't writing to seminary students. He's writing to ordinary Christians. And God will enable you to understand what Paul wrote, just like he would enable the Ephesian Christians to understand what he wrote. Now, most Christians don't understand these things because we really haven't taken the time to understand them. But what we have here, folks, is really an open declaration of what God has done. This is not a secret oath. I mean, God's not trying to keep things secret from us. You know, you can join a secret society. You can join a lodge. You might join the Masons if you want to, and and you'll have to keep things secret. Well, you can play all the secret games that you want, but God doesn't operate that way. He wants this to be shouted from the housetops. You know that song? I'm going to shout it from the housetops, proclaim it from the mountaintops, tell the world around me that Jesus saves. God doesn't want this hidden. He wants us to know about it, and he's given us the wisdom that we can understand it. Now, Paul clearly says that this is God's plan drawn up in eternity past, but God's plan is realized in time. Christ came in the fullness of time, and he provided redemption for God's chosen people. And these, of course, are ones that God calls out of the world in repentance and faith. This is not a secret. So let's don't act like it's impossible for us to understand this. With wisdom and prudence granted by God, we can understand God's plan and purpose. Now, let me point out that this mystery is understood by God's grace. And this is what verse 7 says. The results of redemption come to us by God's grace. Now, on the positive side of this, the mystery, this particular mystery, is not something that's totally incomprehensible to the human mind. But it's something that's not discoverable by the unaided human mind. So it's not that human minds can't comprehend this. It's just that we have to have help to understand it. And our help comes from the Lord. Now, negatively stated, though, the human mind will never arrive. It will never arrive at the answers to life's questions, not to salvation, not to the blood of Christ, not about redemption, not about election, not about any of these doctrines. It will never arrive at those answers unless it is regenerated unless the mind is made anew, unless we become new creatures in Christ. Now, that's why repentance and faith must be fruits of regeneration rather than the causes of regeneration. You see, the human mind could never understand repentance from sin, and we can't understand faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ until we have been quickened by the Spirit of God, until we've been brought alive so that we can understand these things. We'll get to that in a few weeks when we get into chapter 2, but that's absolutely essential. So this is the way that God works in this. He gives us the grace. He quickens us to life. And in this, we see over and over and over again the same thing throughout, and that is God is first. God is primary. God moves first, not us. He moves first, or we can't move. Now, do you understand why 
God work things out this way and why he did not devise a plan that would be based upon your decisions and would not be based upon your intellect. Why did God devise such a plan? Well, if it doesn't work this way, then there would be millions of people in this world that it would be useless for us to share the gospel with. I mean, why would we go to the jungles of New Guinea to give people the gospel when they are uneducated, when they don't know how to read and write? You see, if, if salvation's based on intellect, then very few people would be able to be saved, and there'd be a huge population of the world that could never know, come to know Christ because they're just not smart enough to be saved. But we preach to people in far-off lands without education and without learning because trusting Christ has nothing at all to do with intellect. Not at all. uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ can be believed by the most primitive person in the world. And why is that? Because it's God who opens the mind. It's God who illuminates us. And he enables us to understand it. Now, isn't this what Jesus said? I mean, he said that many shall come from the east and the west and from the north and the south. And they shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And then he also said that there will be people from every, from every kindred, every tongue, every tribe. Many, many people will be saved, and intellect has nothing at all to do with it. And so when you hear a person say, uh, preachers, and I've heard preachers say this, I am just so glad that you had the good sense to be saved, to believe. Salvation is not by good sense. If it was by good sense, we'd all die and go to hell. Salvation is the movement of God upon the heart, and he enables us to believe. And without that, we never could. Now, let me finish very quickly this evening. Uh, The third point, I don't have a lot of time to devote to this, but thirdly tonight, redemption results in unification. Now, verse number 10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. Why does God redeem? Well, the final purpose is to gather all things back to himself again. You see, when sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, all of the world, all of creation became cursed because of Adam's sin. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, and he even says there that, that the creature, the animals of the world, even they are waiting for final redemption when the curse is going to be lifted. Now, right now in the world, we have everything but unification. We, we have corruption, there are wars, there's economic divisions, there are political divisions, religious divisions, but redemption will finally bring about unification. Now we can say first about this, that God's final purpose is realized. Now here is another reason why our theology should be God-centered and not man-centered. Why? Because God's final purpose is actually bigger than our salvation, I mean, God's final purpose in our salvation, this is just a piece of God's plan. Man's salvation is just a piece of this big puzzle of God. And we are presumptuous to think that this is all about us. It's not all about us. It's all about God. It's all about God's creation and how he's going to bring things back together to himself. And so the greatest hope that we have in this life is because of God's purpose to gather things back to himself. And that's why we're a part of this. That's why we get saved, because God's going to bring it back to himself. Now, we look today at the world, and we look at all the wars that go on. We look at the problems that we have, and everybody is trying to solve the problems. 
Even Christians get into this, and they think that we can solve all problems if we could just make everybody live by a code of Christian conduct. And so preachers of the Christian right, and I'm not necessarily knocking the Christian right, but I think they're wrong on this, they spend their time trying to solve governmental problems more so than preaching the gospel of Christ. And our pulpits are immersed in politics and political speeches rather than they are in the preaching of God's Word. Now, folks, it is not going to do anybody any good to hogtie them into living by Christian standards. And, and to try to Christianize people who aren't saved shows a stupendous ignorance of the revelation of sin in the Word of God. We can't do this. God never told us. He never told Christians not even one time to try to fix the government. He never said that Christians are to force anyone to live by a certain standard. Now, we need our pulpits filled with the pure gospel preaching of Jesus Christ and leave politics to the politicians. And why should we do that? Because God has a final plan. And God's final plan will be realized no matter what any politician does or what any preacher says or what anybody else decides or what any government decides. God's final plan will be realized. So we just preach God's word. God will save who he will. And then finally, he'll bring about the realization of his plan for his own purposes. Now, do you know why I think that fundamentalists are involved in this government stuff and and every time you turn around they're always involved in some kind of religious fight it's because they have rejected the idea that God has any purpose at all they don't believe in election they don't believe in predestination and so what they have is a God who has set things in motion and then he's left us to run it And so then what we naturally have to do, if that's true, we've got to figure out some kind of godly plan to make it all work. And that's where we go wrong. Folks, if we would just believe the Bible, what the Bible clearly says, we would preach God's word and let God do the rest of this. He already has a plan, folks. And all the politicians and all the the preachers that the world could ever produce will never change God's plan. What is God's plan? Unification. It's to bring every last person in this world under the subjection of Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Now, fundamentalist preachers are never going to be able to force obedience to God, and neither should they try. That's not our job. We preach God's Word, and then God will, quite frankly, this is the honest truth of it, one of these days, He's going to force obedience to Him. Now, those of us that are saved will gladly serve him. But even the lost, we're going to come under the dominion of God when he brings things back to himself, and they will live under the reign and rule of God. Now, the second thing that we notice about this is that God's dispensation is realized. Now, Paul uses the word dispensation in verse number 10. What's a dispensation? I'm not going to spend very much time on this because... The dispensationalists, I think, quite frankly, have already spent too much time on it. They've, uh, they've got a dispensation for everything, and they've got so many dispensations that everybody's totally confused about what's going on anyway. And then you add to that, they've got this idea that uh, there's a different salvation for every dispensation. Let me tell you something, folks, that is heresy. There's only one way that people have ever been saved, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. They were always saved that way, and they always will be saved that way. That's the only plan that God has ever had. It's salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Now, what am I talking about here? What is a dispensation? Well, it depends on what angle you view it from. A dispensation is simply God's way of running things. It's not necessarily a time period, but a dispensation may fit into a time period. I mean, this is what God does during a specific time period. And so you can view a dispensation from two different angles. You can view a dispensation from the one who's under the authority of God's plan. And if you look at it that way, then uh, a dispensation is a stewardship. It's an office. It's an administration. It's what you do under God's authority. But if you view it from God's angle, then a dispensation is the plan that God enacts. And it's clear, as we read verse number 10, that he's looking at it from God's angle. It is the plan that God has enacted. And this is what God has done in revealing the mystery of his will. It's the plan that he determined to enact. Well, what is this plan involved? Well, it involved the election of God's chosen people, but that's not necessarily, I think, what he's talking about here. Now we're talking about redemption. And so this particular piece of it, he's talking about final redemption. The final redemption that was begun when Christ came in the fullness of time. You see, Jesus came to this earth in the fullness of time, at exactly the right time that God wanted him to come, and he began to implement this plan. The Bible teaches us that we are living in the last days, And the last days are the time period that began in Christ's first advent. And it will carry through until we come to this final final, uh, uh, power and authority of Christ being exercised upon the whole world when everything's brought back together. So finally, all kingdoms of the earth will be subdued. All people will be in subjection to God. Sin will be fully eradicated. And all of God's creation will be unified once again. And so involved in this is the final settlement of the rebellion that took place in heaven. When Satan and the angels fell, the fallen angels, uh, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's part of the plan. Included in this is the rebellion on earth. When man fell, there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And all those who aren't believers in Christ who die without him, they will experience the second death. They'll stand before God and they'll be uh, thrown into the lake of fire where they'll experience the second death. Included in this is also the judgment seat of Christ. And that's when Christians will be judged for our rewards and then we'll go to live in heaven. Included in this is the restoration of the earth when the earth will be uh, purged in a violent conflagration that's spoken about in Second Peter. That's part of the plan. Included in this is Christ ruling with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom. And that's when all men and animals will live at peace with one another. All of this is the mystery of God's will, and it's the dispensation of the fullness of times. Well, I would say to you tonight, thank God, if you're one of God's elect, thank God he chose you. Thank God that you're saved, that he enlightened you the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you could believe, and you are a part of God's plan and purpose. In whom we have redemption. And thank the Lord for our redemption. Thank God for the results of our redemption. Forgiveness and wisdom and prudence. And finally, unification. Thank the Lord. It's his plan and not ours. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And how exciting it is to think about what you've done for us. And Lord, that we can never depend upon ourselves. We can never look to us. We always have to look to you. And thank God we don't have to depend on ourselves because we're failures, we're miserable, we're sinners. But only through your grace can we be made right, can we be brought back to you. 
And will we forgive, uh, receive the forgiveness of our sins? And we just thank you, Lord, for that. Bless our people in this time of invitation tonight. Speak to hearts. Move on somebody's heart, Lord, if that's your will. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.